Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jonah was so proud and self-righteous. He was so magnified in his own mind and eyes that he began to think he was worthy of the grace that God had shown him, that he was worthy of the blessings that God had given him. And listen, none are worthy, or it wouldn't be a gift to us if we could earn it, if we could deserve it. Part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Prophet Jonah, we continue to look at the words of Jesus as he talked about the prophet. We see the amazing pictures he was painting by discussing the sign of Jonah and what it meant to the lost religious leaders of that generation, as well as those of us saved by his grace. We continue in Matthew 12, starting in verse 40. So Jonah becomes then a picture of this very group that was confronting Jesus. Like Jonah, they were self-righteous and proud. Like Jonah, they exalted themselves and, and, well, they pretty much had decided that the rabble around them was unworthy of the blessings that they were receiving daily. And so they pulled their cloaks in tight. Rather than reaching out, they drew a real small circle and made it very difficult to get in. Well, Jonah was the same kind of man, but God used him in spite of himself. And this evil and adulterous generation, represented here by the religious leaders, well, that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Now, the second picture here, the second type here, has to do with the most wonderful, undeniable, radical sign And that's the sign of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And he says so. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a type. And we don't really know what happened in the belly of that fish. We do know Jonah's prayer. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. That's an Old Testament word for hell. Now, we don't know if Jonah died and went to hell or if he just thought living in that fish's belly was hell. But Jonah was like a lot of people if the second is the case. You ever talk to people who say, I think heaven and hell are just right here and it's whatever you make of it. No, listen, I want to tell you something. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, if you're born again of his spirit, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. But this is nothing like hell. And if you're not a believer and you don't repent and come to faith in him, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. And I promise you, this is nothing like heaven. You see, this is just the place where we get to make the decision. Are we going to spend eternity apart from the Lord or with the Lord? Are we going to spend eternity grinding our teeth against the Lord? Or are we going to spend eternity worshiping the Lord? And by the way, when we talk about heaven and hell or hell and heaven, since I've been going that direction to this, You need to know those are real places. Jesus said there'd be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Some to everlasting life, others to everlasting condemnation. And Jesus talked more about hell as a literal place in the Gospels than he did about heaven. They're both real. Well, in any case, Jesus' resurrection makes, well, it gives us hope for our ultimate destination. You see, The gospel is Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And there is forgiveness of sin and life everlasting in him. 
But we got to choose it. We got to accept the gift that he offers. Now, Jesus' resurrection, of course, was prophesied in many ways in the Old Testament. It was also prophesied through the types like Jonah and, and others. Jesus himself promised that he would rise from the dead, destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. Here, as Jonah, well, so it will be with me. So he promises the resurrection, and then, well, he provides it. He rises from the dead the third day. He begins to prove it by appearing first to the women, then to some of his disciples, to Peter alone, then to the eleven, and then after... Time after time, he appears well to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to 500 brethren at once. Why? He was trying to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. And so what he does is he says, look, you're looking for a sign. I'll give you one sign. That sign will be the resurrection, my resurrection. And then he talks about judgment. And ultimately, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection brings about a judgment. Why? There's an offer of forgiveness. It's put on the table. And when we refuse, well, we don't repent. And, and then, well, judgment will come. He says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh. Why? Because they repented at the preaching, at the witness of Jonah. And he says, listen, they're going to be in the judgment and they're going to condemn you. Why? Because Israel and these leaders specifically saw so much from the Lord, not just in their history with their forefathers. They saw things no one else had ever seen. They saw the miracles firsthand. They heard the teaching firsthand. And he said, listen, a greater than Jonah is here. He mentions judgment yet another time in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. I made mention of Noah. It says the very same thing about him in his day. Listen. By faith, Noah, and this is Hebrews 11.7 for you note takers. By faith, Noah, divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You get that? He condemned his generation. How? Because he believed God and obeyed God. And that's exactly what happened with the Ninevites. And that's what happened when that queen came and heard the wisdom of Solomon. You see, the one who believes and responds, the one who believes and obeys, well, God justifies them. That word's one we don't use in the everydayness of our interaction, but it just means God now deals with me as a believer, just as if I'd never sinned. And he does that on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his shed blood for me. And that's a reality for every single believer. Well, he says then judgment is coming and judgment day is coming. And then we get to these twin perils of religion and reformation. There's a spiritual context and I want you to see that because 
Religion is spiritual in nature. The question is, is it always God's spirit? And Reformation may or may not include God in it, but there's a spiritual aspect to it. Note how he illustrates this reality. When an unclean spirit, verse 43, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be also with this wicked generation. Religion. Why is it a peril? Listen, religion is man's attempt to appease God or please God. And when God looks at religious people who have never experienced regeneration, here's how he describes them. Well, the religious of his day, and get these religious leaders were actually doing things God had ordained. You see, their forefathers were given sacrifices and feasts and festivals and all these celebrations and they were still going on. The difference being, initially those led people into a deeper and closer relationship with the Lord. They were the basis of approaching Him and fellowshipping with Him. But now the people are just going through the motions. And so it's no longer about relationship with God, it's just about religion. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, on the outside, looking pretty good. But inside, whew, dead men's bones. It's a picture that, well, they would have all gotten in that day. Alongside many of the roads, people would be buried who died on those roads. And they would cover over, not with a gravestone standing up, but just a stone laying down. And when they were ready to have feasts or festivals and multitudes would be coming to Jerusalem for them, they would go out and they would whitewash all those stones. Why? Because the step on a grave would defile you and they were coming to feast. They don't want to be defiled. That renders you unfit for worship, for fellowship, for service. And so Jesus, knowing they were aware, said, listen, you look pretty good on the outside. You're like whitewashed tombs. Now, tombs should have been a clue. It wasn't going to be a very good description from there on. And he just says, outside, beautiful, but inside, dead men's bones. Concerning our righteousness, whatever rightness we might have in the sight of God, apart from that which he imputes to us, well, he says, it's filthy rags. You can't present your own righteousness to God. Why? There are none righteous, he says. No, not one. Well, In any case, that's what religion is all about. It's building a bridge to God. It's trying to be good enough for God. It it leads us to comparing ourselves with others. And and ultimately, if you're going to be a religious person and you've never experienced the new birth and you miss out on that reality, well, you're going to always be looking to compare yourself with somebody that's, well, you know, like a mass murderer. Well, I'm no mass murderer. Well, thank God. Maybe you didn't even murder anybody, but you think that makes you righteous in the sight of a holy God? God's standard is so high that only one man has ever met it, and that's the man, Jesus Christ, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Now, we can't even say, I've gone a whole day without sin. And if we could get through a whole day without sin, we'd be so prideful at the end of it, we'd be sinning in our minds because we're like, well, I didn't sin all day. You know, look at me. 
It's our human nature. And you got to see that religion is a deadly enemy. Religion, a deadly enemy of the rebirth, of regeneration, of a real relationship. Why? It's a substitute for it. And people think, well, I already have it. I've already given, I've already go to church. I'm, I already read the Bible. I already know that stuff. You can't know it, though, unless you're born again. The natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Well, the other peril here is reformation. And you know, a person can reform his life or her life without any religious experience. And you don't have to even believe in God to reform your life. If you're a drunk, stop drinking and you'll be reformed. If you're a thief, stop stealing and start working. That's reformation at its core and essence. If you're filled with envy, well, stop. If you're, if you're greedy, well, become generous. That's reformation. And it's a real outward transformation. And listen, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I wish all the drunks were sober. And I, I know it's probably not politically correct to call them drunks, but I've been, I'm 52. I've lived a long time. They were drunks almost all my life. They've only recently become alcoholics. And so, so if you're a drunk, don't drink. If you're, by the way, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand this. If you're an alcoholic, I'm not saying there's no such thing. I've had people, when I say these kinds of things, they come up and say, I want to tell you, alcoholism is real. It's a real disease. And when I drink, I just can't stop. Well, then my counsel is the same. Don't drink. You see, that will work for you, guaranteed. Don't take the first drink. You won't have to take the second drink because you've got control until you take the first drink. I'm not arguing that there isn't such a disease as alcoholism, but it's the only disease that, well... You have an absolute control over and cure for. Don't drink. But here's the deal. If you're a drunk and you stop drinking and you've reformed yourself, or if you're a thief and you stop stealing and you start working, well, you're better off and society's better off temporally. And I'd much rather have a sober working public than a, a drunk stealing public. But you still don't have any grounds on which to stand before the Lord. You still are unrighteous in His sight. Yes, you're reformed, but, but He calls us to more than reformation. He calls us to regeneration. And that's why I say these are twin perils. Now note, He suggests a demonic influence. It doesn't have to be the case. You need to know that. Our flesh is sufficient to drag us down even if Satan didn't exist. Our flesh is enough to condemn us even if demons never messed with us. But here he says, citing this example of a demon that just leaves of his own accord. And he goes through the dry places. He seeks rest. He finds none. And he says, and this is chilling to me, I will return to my house. He considers this man, not, not so much his property, but his house, he lives in him, dwells in him, from which I came. And he says, when he comes, he finds it, and here's, here's reformation, empty, swept, and put in order. He's got it together. His life has changed. He's doing better. But note what happens next. He goes and takes with them seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first, and again, he applies it. So it will be with this wicked generation. Now, there are some reading these things, those who've read these things, and other passages relating to the spiritual influences 
the spiritual wicked influences that we have to contend with who've come up with the idea that our behavior, our sinful behavior, our fleshly sinful behavior is actually really all demons' fault. And they came up with this idea that there were demons of gluttony and, and demons of lust and, and demons of, well, demons for just about everything, envy and murder and hatred. But here's the problem I have with that. In Galatians 5, he says these are the works of the flesh. And they're evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, or tell you beforehand, just as I've told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, it would be great if it was a demon of gluttony, you could just get it cast out and then you wouldn't have to worry, but that's not the problem. It's a sin of the flesh. And idolatry and immorality and sorcery and heresy, is there a, a spiritual nature to it? Absolutely. But, but it's a sin of the flesh. And we got to know what front we're fighting on if we have any hope of succeeding in the battle. And so people that are out there rebuking the devil and rebuking the devil and rebuking the devil. When the problem is inside, not outside, it's, it's internal, it's fleshly, it's physical. And so the deal is, and if this sounds familiar to you, last time we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, we looked at it and talked about it. Such were some of you, very similar list and a very similar warning. If this is your lifestyle and you continue in that lifestyle, he says you will never inherit the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter who you blame it on or what you blame it on, unless you repent, you're never going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that brings us to Jesus' final little section here. And, and it's interesting, he, he makes the point that Spiritual relationships, because they're eternal, because they're spiritual, they're preeminent over physical, temporal relationships. And he makes it in a very powerful way. While he's still talking to the multitudes, we're told his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brother are standing outside. Your mother and your brothers seeking to speak with you. Two quick things. I skipped over it. I got to reshare it. If you find yourself engaged in a spiritual battle, and that will happen from time to time, you, you sense that this is more than just a physical struggle. There's something going on spiritual. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I mentioned it last time. I mentioned it again because that's all you need to know. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Here we find, though, Jesus' mother and brothers coming to him. You need to know that Jesus had natural brothers, half-brothers. Prior to um, Joseph and, and Mary, of course, coming together, Jesus was born and birthed of the Holy Spirit. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. But some would suggest she continued perpetually to be a virgin. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Her and Joseph had other children, Jesus' half-brothers. And you need to know that they didn't believe in Jesus. Not initially. Not until after the sign. What sign? 
the resurrection. After the resurrection, they became believers. And, and some foundational and important in the Jerusalem church there. But at this point, they're actually coming to rescue him from himself. It doesn't say so here, but the other gospel accounts fill that blank in. And it's an important one. You see, the religious leaders had said, well, he's demon-possessed or in cahoots with Satan. His own brothers think he's lost his mind. And you almost can understand this. You've got to remember, they grew up in the same house with them. And some of you had brothers or sisters that they were like the good one, you know, and so it's like, oh, Mr. Perfect. Well, he really was, you see. And he was the one kid you didn't want to be compared with in the family. And then he begins to tell them, Man, amazing things have been revealed to me. I'm actually the creator of the universe and, and I came to save all mankind from their sins. Listen, if your brother started telling you that, you'd think he was nuts too. But it's worse than that. He doesn't just tell them. He's telling everybody. And he's working miracles. And, and they say, man, we've got to rescue him. We've got to bring him home. He needs help. He needs rest. Now, Mary knows better, but she's along for the ride. Why? Well, she had an angelic visitation. She knew she'd never had sex. She knew that baby was born miraculously. She knew he would be the Messiah because the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She knew it, but they didn't believe it. So they come to rescue him, as it were. And when he gets the word, well, you got to see this. Since Jesus never sinned, since Jesus always did what pleased the Father, it's not possible that he's dismissing his family here or failing to honor his mother or, or being disrespectful in any way. No, he's trying to teach us a very important spiritual principle. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? A lot of people today teach the universal brotherhood of man. I don't believe in it at all. The universal, everybody's a child of God. I don't see that. It's not in the Bible and it's not in reality. You don't see it because it's not real. But, but here he talks about being family with him. And, and how do you become family with Jesus? He says, hey, who are my mother? And who are my brothers? And who is my mother? Excuse me. And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's saying who are, well, here are, and whoever does. And all he's saying is, listen, our natural relationships, and I hope you have a healthy family relationship, that you get along with your relatives, that you love your you know, siblings and your parents, and if you got kids, that you love them, and the extended family, but not everybody gets along all that well with their families. But he's saying there's, there's a preeminent relationship because it is an eternal spiritual relationship. And that's the one we've entered into. Those of you who are born again, who've experienced not just religion or reformation, but regeneration, you're alive in the Spirit. God has sealed you with this Holy Spirit. You're His. And if that's you, then we really are family. We really are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll always be that. But, but, it's not the natural, it's the supernatural that leads to real brotherhood. It's not the natural, but the supernatural that leads to real healthy family relationships. So we have it, the sign of the prophet 
Jonah. And we have the warning against religion and reformation and in its place, regeneration, truly born again of the Spirit of God. And we have the warning of coming judgment. And then we have the promise, adopted into the family, children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ and His kids. And that offers on the table. It is truly an amazing thing to consider oneself a child of God, to realize we have received adoption as His sons and daughters. And as Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 5-7, His Spirit has been sent to us, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This means we are truly His child. And our inheritance? Freedom from the slavery of sin, truly an heir of God through Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.